Catherine, you're very welcome. Thank you. Excited um, to be still, here. Still, just like I said about our participants, just like I said about our participants, it still goes with the panelists. Everyone is just so busy, zoomed out in meeting after meeting. Thank you very much. My network is, is unstable, but we shall we shall make do. Let's go ahead. Um, so this this afternoon, I would like to to introduce our, our speaker. She's called Dr. Catherine Nakalema, who is the 2020 Africa Food Prize laureate, um, and she got she got the award. She got the prize for her dedication to improving the lives of smallholder farmers by using satellite technology to harness data to guide agriculture decision making. Grew up in Kampala, Uganda, and then went ahead to get her doctorate in geographical science at the University of Maryland, where she's actually a, uh, an assistant research professor, but she's also the NASA Harvest Africa program director. Welcome again, Catherine. So I would Thank like you so much, to. Patricia. I'd like to, to get to know the person behind these big prizes. Who is Catherine? Thanks, Patricia. So I'm Catherine Akalembe. I'm an assistant research professor at the University of Maryland in Geographic Sciences. I'm basically repeating what Patricia just said, but um, I grew up in Kampala in Makindye um, with, my, with my sisters and my parents. Uh, I've had a strong interest in, um, in the environment, really. Geography was always my favorite subject. Um, and I went on to do, when I finished my undergrad, I wanted to do sports science. Uh, some of you might have read my the BBC article that was written about me. I played badminton extensively. My whole family did. Uh, I was a juniors champion. My sister was a... a a women's champion and she's now actually the president of the Uganda Badminton Association. So badminton has been really close to, to our hearts. So I hoped to do sports science um, for my undergrad, but then I ended up uh, not qualifying for the program and I applied to two other programs and I got into the environmental science program uh, at University Makere in, in Kampala. And when I finished, I thought that, well, wow, um, you know, when you realize that there's just so much about what you just started to learn and that you need to know more about it. This is basically the realization closer to the end of my program. And I started to apply for programs in the US and I got into the Geography and Environment Engineering program at uh, Johns Hopkins University for a master's. And when I was finishing my master's, the same thing, basically, I realized that, you know, there's just like the wealth of knowledge and information out there about everything from our environment um, and the tools and, act, and, and, and resources that we have to help us understand um, how our world functions and how we can protect the environment, which has been pretty close to my heart. Um, it's just enormous. And so I sought to do uh, a PhD and uh, I wanted to do something that even before leaving Uganda, I wanted to do something that I could apply back home. So I was water resources because these are things that are, you know, pretty close to the Ugandan economy. We have, of course, the giant Lake Victoria. We have, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, 
we used to have a lot of like pristine natural forests. We have these amazing, you know, landscapes that I didn't know much about. Um, so I'm a master's in geographical science and food security. So I started looking into IS technology to understand food security, food access, uh, and, and bring um, these tools into uh, research, um, you know, into my, into my own research that then could inform policy or could apply something directly back home. And, and food security is just basically one of those uh, critical high priority things that most African governments are, you know, grappling with and would like to be able to address. Okay. So, um, Dr. Nakale, I called you Nakale my earlier on. Please, apologies for that. It's okay. Um, it's okay. So, tell us briefly a little bit um, about the National Harvest Program. What, what, what is it that, that, that you do since your program? So, so NASA Harvest is NASA's agriculture and food security program. Um, NASA has um, has made a lot of investment in terms of you know putting satellites in, into orbit. You know uh, a lot of uh, it has an extensive research program, and the Harvest program falls under what's called the Applied Sciences team, where we bring. Um, we develop methods, use tools, and uh, try to apply them directly to, in this particular case, to agriculture and food security. And so um, it was awarded to the University of Maryland, uh, where I work, um, and the University of Maryland manages the consortium in 2017. And um, the intention of it is to make sure that all the the the, the investments in, in instruments satellites researchers that you know are trying to understand how, how our earth functions particularly related to agriculture so scientists who are studying water the atmosphere uh soil and uh, uh land cover and land use but directly trying to understand how that impacts our food system um can we can bring that information into the hands of decision makers so we can have very many really fancy cool approaches methods tools data however there's kind of a gap between um what's needed by the policymakers as well as um making it um uh, i'm going to use the word consumable so if something cannot be used it's you know it's it can be great but nobody will we wouldn't benefit from it or we wouldn't do things differently and that's what the harvest program is about so the many years for example there's a landsat satellite some 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 people who are familiar with remote sensing might be familiar with that's been collecting data for more than 30 years focusing in on earth and those data can be used to understand land cover changes agriculture production uh, they've been used for scheduling uh, scheduling um, irrigation and so Anybody can take advantages of, advantage of those tools, and that's what we're trying to do at Harvest: make sure those data and insights that come from those data come, you know, go to um, the people that make the decisions that can actually impact on people's livelihoods. So, knowing where food is, how it's being produced, uh, where there'll be a lot, where there'll be little, where you can move food, you could buy food in an area that's been producing very well. If you knew earlier that it was going to do a lot better. Uh, then another region which might need support to give an example for example um to use uganda as an example 
agriculture production is very poor in the northeast. It's a semi-arid region. There's a lot of climate variability there. This is the Karamoja region. Yet a lot of the, the southwest of the country is high, highly productive. So if you can kind of understand how bad um, the production will be in the north to understand how much extra you would need and how so much better or how, how agriculture will perform in the southwest, you could move uh, the produce from the southwest to the north, which would mean that farmers in the southwest won't lose their produce if they have a bumper harvest and then farmers and then and then uh, communities in the northeast will have access to food earlier rather than later when things are you know when things are really bad so that's what you know so, the um, core of harvest so um that that, that helps um lay people like me to understand because i was wondering state like data policy how how does that how does that all work together but um i have um a governance sort of a governance question from what you've explained it is to someone who let's say lives in uganda it is not news that the northeast is, is a semi-arid area and agriculture has told us we need water and rainfall and there is little in that area but consistently we see we see countries suffer from droughts so yeah. and then with or without the information that you get from your satellites this, this this knowledge is available to us. How come we've never done what you are suggesting? How come our governments haven't done that? So we have ministries of disaster disaster preparedness. So mm -hmm. Please go ahead, Catherine. So fundamentally, that's you know kind of the the thing that I was explaining before. Sure. For example, for harvest existing is that. Um, the data, the tools that can tell us about what's going on pretty much across every agricultural landscape in the world exists today. And with a bit more investment in infrastructure or researchers and, uh, and having like a system that works. So the food system is not only about people working in their farm, it's about uh, moving food where it's needed. It's about getting uh, sustainable infrastructure like irrigation systems, in addition to the education that's required for the farmers in that particular region to be able to use their land, which they probably, you know, already have. So you find that um, in some instances, there's a policy gap where um, there's an assumption, you know, because agriculture, you know, in, in increasing production in, in terms of crops um, is a solution, yet maybe the community is a pastoral community. And so in, in that particular case, food security would be about ensuring that the communities have pasture and have a, you know, they kind of keep their systems of, of, of managing their pasture lands uh, intact, you know, keeping them intact so that they can sustain their livestock. So it is, it's it's kind of a mismatch. And, you know, 20, 2021 is like the year of food systems as a UN food system summit. And it's like some of the topics that are being discussed are, are talking about recognizing these. Uh, a good example or study that just been published maybe uh, in the past week or so, recognizing that small 
fields or small scale farmers, you know, uh, small scale fields are, are more diverse in terms of you know biodiversity. And so you you don't want to go towards large scale production if you really want to protect our environmental system. So then when you hear that, when there's been a big push towards commercialization and, and aggregation and large scale farms, then you question, well, then how do we feed, you know, there's so many more billion people with small scale fields. And so it's it's such a, a huge and really complex um, question, but I think, and, and one of the reasons why I, I really like the data is because particularly satellite data is that we can come up with um, data-based assessments, you know, like we clearly know that agricultural production is not doing well in place A because we've looked at it in time and in space. So if in the past 20 years, despite investments, let's say past 10 years, despite huge investments, you know, if we can track those investments, there hasn't been a significant change in, um, in production in an area, then there's just something uh, fundamentally wrong with how that problem is being approached. If there's been little investments, but there's been significant changes in, in the livelihoods of, of people, as well as our culture production, as well as protection of ecosystems, then you can say that this particular system works because of A, B, C, D, and then you can make clear directed um, planning and, 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 and invest in, in, you know, in, in, in that process. So it's too complex to kind of pinpoint that it is this one thing, but one of the things that I can say clearly is that across uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, there's been very little investment in, um, in data and data infrastructure, things like, internet uh, really a privilege. It's really, really expensive. And so, it, I mean, it's expensive if you want to use it just for social media, but imagine how so much more expensive it is if you wanted to do data analysis. And if you're a student at a university um, or if you work at a ministry of agriculture and are not able to take advantage of, you know, the massive amounts of data that are out there for you to clearly make a policy uh, you know, a report that could inform policy, then, you know, there's, there's not much progress we can make. And so, in my opinion, this is just one of the things and it's kind of one of the things that I've, um, I've tried to work hard towards. So trying to get more people, you know, working with more students to understand remote sensing and remote sensing data and how it's being used for agriculture monitoring. Um, but also, I mean, the, the biggest thing that I've spent the last five or so years has been working with uh, ministries of agriculture, departments of disaster relief, um, on working on how to understand the data, how to understand and use the data that are available for their different for for the different tasks that they're supposed to do. So, if you work in the Department of Food Security, you want to know how crops are doing. You want to monitor them. You want to monitor the crops in time and in space. And then you can say clearly that. In region A, there's going to be a significant drop in production this year. In region B, there'll be a bumper harvest and we will need to do A, B, C, D um, to help everybody. Because if there's a bumper harvest and there's too much food, you've seen food rot on the market. Just like the case with with shutdowns, yeah. Okay, thank you, Catherine. I would like um to to now pivot from sort of sorry. the abstract and come. Did did you miss? Did you hear that? Sorry, sorry. Did you miss me? 
Okay. Um, sure, no, am I ahead. clear oh. now? Yes. So I was saying thank you very much for that um, explanation. And I would like now to move from the abstract to, to the real, to the practical. I have read that um, that, that, that um, actually you, you, you won the 2020 Africa Food Prize because of how you have helped communities mitigate um, the, effects of, the effects of climate change and the environment in which they live. So I would like um, a real example, one or two examples, just maybe briefly, where you've used your data to actually bring about change in the lives of um, smallholder families. Sure. So uh, this is an example from my uh, from my PhD. So the northeast that I mentioned, my PhD was focused on the Karamoja region, and I was looking at agriculture, land use, and uh, and drought, um, and how that impacts the communities in the northeast um, in the northeastern part of Uganda, which is the Karamoja region. And while I was doing my research, you know, I was just characterizing drought using satellite data, going back in time to see how bad droughts have been, how they're spread in time, and then how that relates to agricultural land use. There's been a lot of uh, investments and expansion of agriculture in, in the area. So I was interested to see how much land has been converted into agriculture as well. And closer to the, around 2015, I'd come to do research in, in Uganda. I always went to, the, I went to Karmaja region every, every August. And so um, I've, when I do my field work, I basically write a report, summarize the data and, and what it is. I, I, I typically wrote my reports as a, kind of like a, would be like a news article actually, because at the time I was working on a, this project called uh, Sparring a Transformation in Our Culture Through Remote Sensing. And so, um, through this, I had introduced my project and my research to the Office of the Prime Minister in Uganda. And at the time, they were designing their disaster risk financing program. And um, I was invited to take part in the planning of those meetings. And I it, basically, the description of the program was a, an application of my research. And so um, I helped design what, what's called the trigger mechanism of that uh, disaster risk financing program. So basically, uh, we'd analyze remote sensing data, and once a threshold is hit, so once the um, crop conditions drop below a certain level, this financing fund would be released, meaning that then the department can plan early and they would kickstart these um, other projects that the communities that are impacted by drought can do. So instead of continuing to work on a field that's destined to fail, um, the people, for example, in Rupa Sub County would start to do other things that can give them a bit of income until the start of the next um, growing season. Um, and then the other example, so that's that's been ongoing. It's actually finalized in the, uh, this year. Um, and I think in 2019, over 300,000 people had been supported. So this estimate is based on the number of households that directly received um, um, payments through that disaster risk financing. And they found out quite a, a number of things, including like village dams or fixing roads or, um, or saving schemes for uh, the communities that are impacted. And then while I was doing that is uh, I also helped um, start the national level monitoring systems in Uganda, in Tanzania, and then later on in Kenya. And uh, we're right now working on one for Rwanda for Mali as well as for Ethiopia. So that's and these kind of this, the monitoring systems basically 
The way they're set up is that the departments themselves run the analyses, similar to the disaster risk financing. So I designed the trigger mechanism, but the actual implementation was done by the Office of the Prime Minister and not by me. And so they do their own analysis and then um, determine when there is a, you know, when the thresholds hit and then when to disperse the funds and then they start rolling out the projects. Catherine, you 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 mentioned very you mentioned quite clearly how you had your data and your research and then you you end up taking it to the prime minister's office and then that long story of, of success and, and, and implementation unfolds. My question as um as someone who works in the sciences wanting to, to, to use data to influence policy, but there's so many roadblocks. Getting a policy shift is so difficult. So I would like for you, as someone who has managed to do this, to speak to, 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 to scientists, so people out there who have the evidence, but for, for one reason or another, they are failing to shift policy in the right direction or in their favor. I mean, I'd say there might, there might have been some luck, but um, I think believing strongly in in what you're doing, I think in, in my particular case is, is what paid off because I, I made it sound like it was very simple that I was like, oh, wait, look, I might, this is what I'm doing for my PhD. It works really well. It can be done by everybody. I can train others to do it. Um, it, it wasn't exactly like that. It took a very long time period for me to, because I mean, it wasn't about just the data in this particular case because the the project was designed to have used data, but then to approach it the way I'd suggested um, was very different than the typical project because what I'd suggested was that it be fully run uh, by the department, that they would be equipped to access the data and trained to access the data and, and do it themselves rather than, you know, I or some other expert does the analysis and, you know, sends it to them once it's done. And so, I strongly believed in this because um, it's a very strong community. Um, there's a, a, an initiative called GeoGlam that I'm a part of. It's a group on Earth Observations Global Culture Monitoring Initiative. And part of what it is is trying to support as many organizations to use remote sensing. And supporting them doesn't stop at making sure the satellites work, that the satellites work for the right reasons, and that the, the data it goes beyond that it goes into inform the decision makers and for me this is kind of the core and so i worked hard to convince you know the the, the project team that this would work and would work really well and it was about persistence and research is, is right on and you clearly see it for the for the positive. I don't think, I think you don't stop and you you, you figure out a way, you know, we have a lot of tools right now. Like it's not like before where things like, you know, social media that you could communicate yourself science within exists. So everyone um, raise your, you know, end up in the hands of the right people, I think. But also, I think, you know, in, 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 in Sub-Saharan Africa, I think there needs to be a stronger linkage between 
between science research and about um, you know waste management or, or resource um, governance I think they're not directly there's there's kind of a, a lack of a, an intersect of like the most kind of research and how that relates to protecting our environment and that needs to be strengthened for sure so you have very strong environmental programs that support and provide experience and high you know high quality researchers and research who then can you know devise and develop programs that can help protect what you're trying to protect so they need we we also as scientists we need to be empowered and we need to be listened to you've had the hashtag listen to scientists you know it's it's it right now is really important and scientists have a, a we, we also have a platform we use um, social media to reach out to as many people as possible so other people can know that it is possible to do that as well so yeah not a good answer <laughs> no actually quite helpful quite helpful um for me what i picked out um individually was what was um the point of allowing the policymakers to own to own this data and, and and its implementation i think that's quite important because usually you come with your evidence and tell them you know abcd is is happening and i want to implement it would you support me so allowing the policy implementers and makers to to own this process with you so that when dr Catherine nakalembe is gone and back to maryland all these ministries you know the work continues beyond you so i i, I think for me that was a great learning point but i'm talking about um social media i was wondering when you were talking about um the the, the satellite data and how you access it and then go and take it to to governments or policy implementers is there a way this information can be made available for the lay person so that they can actually access it and use it on their small farm somewhere in tanzania so this goes to the second point which is being able to actually communicate um, your science so when you go for example to the policymaker, you don't speak jargon and make things complicated so that you you're a very fancy scientist i think you have to bring it down to lay terms as possible so that they can understand what you mean for example when i talk about these indices I, sometimes when i'm meeting somebody who is not uh, who is a policymaker, i just basically say that this line here means that this is the current condition. This line here is the average condition. If this line falls below this line, there's a problem. So I don't talk about like very complex terms and uh, you know go into the the math and everything. It's just kind of being able to communicate at the level of that individual. And it goes to the point that you were making. So how do we make this information tangible? So some of the data and tools that are freely accessible, which are some of the tools that we primarily work with at Harvest produce information that is slightly coarse resolution. So it will give you a good idea of what's happening in the general area. So if you group a bunch of farmers together, they have a, a, an acre, you could tell what exactly, or you know, two acres, three acres, you can tell exactly what's happening in, in that general region. What you could use those insights for is uh, when you combine vegetation condition with rainfall, uh, with rainfall, temperature minimum, temperature maximum, the growing conditions of the crop that you're particularly looking at, you can make actual re recommendations. But in order to do that, you need to be able to use a medium that that farmer or that individual you're trying to reach uses. So if you tweet it, if you put it on Facebook, it's completely useless. 
However, if you could connect to a group of farmers through their WhatsApp group where they network and share information. When I was doing my PhD, I was very lucky to, I used to train, I still do extension agents on how to collect data that we use for satellite monitoring. I did a training in, uh, in Iringa and in Morogoro in Tanzania, and I did one in Uganda. I've, I've done quite a few also in Mali. And the exchanges between these extension agents, because they are farmers too, are just incredible. Like they tell each other about, you know, great crops to use, you know, great inputs, where to get fertilizer. They share this across on WhatsApp. So like figuring out a way to package that information that uh, reaches their community, I think is, is really critical. So either, you know, we could say we could, you could send them an SMS text. There's no guarantee that they will read it. However, if I, I feel like, and it's something that I would, you know, really like to do is figure out a way of tapping into these networks of networks and, um, and testing it out to see um, how it goes. I've seen some experiments about, um, you know, using radio and, and television or uh, having other farmers tell other farmers about, you know, what, what's happening. You know, it's, I think it's about the medium and how it's delivered more than about the actual insights. So we could have all the insights, but as long as they're not packaged in a way that is readable. So for example, if you wanted to tell me something, but you put it on TikTok, I will never see it. <laughs> so it's the same thing with the farmer because I am not on TikTok, like I would never get it. So you would need to, you need yeah. to think about yeah, if I don't have a smartphone to see a video, you will not send me a video. I will not find that useful, you know, about how to take care of my plants. I will not find, I won't access that. There are, I think, radio programs, you know, this has to be like a massive understanding and it requires, I think, a different, completely different skill set. So individuals who are working at the ground level can help us figure out a way of packaging that information to be useful for uh, an individual, but the data exists that could be useful to that individual. Yeah. Okay, because I thought it was going to a government minister who then go through, but now that you say it's about access, um, that's understandable. So I would um, like to open up now for just um, a few more minutes that we have with Catherine. Um, anyone, anyone on Zoom, if you have a question, please type it in chat and we shall pass it on to her. And um, those of you who are, listening that, who are listening to us, watching us from Facebook, please send in questions. So that she can um, she can address them, but um, I was going to add a little bit. Since, yeah, no, I was just going to add since you mentioned the 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 minister. Um, I think the the work that we do right now has a lot more impact at the at the national level, so at the minister level. So you would equip the minister, just like in the case of disastrous financing program, with the information to know how bad things are going to be in Region A and what kinds of improvements could be made to help people in region B. And so, but you need to still be able to communicate it to that minister as well. Then the minister could advocate. So give you an example, it's a program in Togo for which we supported to develop um, a land cover map, a, a cropland map from 2019. They wanted to know where our current farmers are. Like they didn't know. I mean, of course you don't know where all your farmers are, but you could use satellite data to find active cropland in, 20, in 2020, when nobody was traveling anywhere because we didn't know how bad the pandemic was going to be, these data become really important. And so having this information to tell the minister the approximate areas where um, 
people who are farmers who might have abandoned their fields, who didn't plant their fields, where they are, where you can kind of co-locate and then you can set up these, you know, you could use mobile money to send them money. You know, it's kind of, it's just kind of thinking about the issue and the problem in an innovative way and being able to explore it in a, in a way that's a lot different. So if you found a solution and then you'd said that all the farmers have to register and come physically to some office in the city, it wouldn't work. Um, but if you kind of come up with an automated way of just saying, there are farmers in region B, 90% of them didn't plant. It means this whole region is going to be impacted. Everybody in that region needs a little bit of extra. Um, you know, cell towers can tell you where everybody is. So you can, you know, if everybody has a cell phone and has mobile money, you can just, you know, do um, a cash transfer with no conditions. And this would actually really help. Yeah, like it would, you know, really help. And that, you know, that's a really innovative solution, which is what we need in, in a year like this and a year like the past year. Yeah. Um, I think I, I, I think COVID has taught us quite a number of things, and we shall make the pivot that you've always wanted us to make. Um, get off, get off dependency on the, you know, the physical, our physical aspect of the world. But um, I, I would also like to understand. You have explained clearly that you can tell um the the, the climatic conditions that now you know maybe that drought is going to be and it will start at this time, but can, what can I call it? To sort of recommend that in this particular part of Tanzania, green beans will grow better. So please kindly stop growing plantain. And in this part of Tanzania, yams will do better. Can, can your data do that? So there's been lots of study on, it's this in the, what you described is, is uh, land suitability. The problem with land suitability analyses is that, um, it's not just about a crop doing well in region A, it's like, what are the people traditionally growing there? So if you brought your matoke, it doesn't matter how well it did. This is a green banana to eat a lot in, in Uganda. It doesn't matter how fantastic it is and would grow really well, let's say for example, in Karamoja, because the Karamojong don't find it valuable. They will not grow it, they will not eat it. And so like the land could be suitable, but then traditionally it isn't. But all of that said, however, um, if a crop, you know, you could use satellite remote sensing and understand um, soil moisture, its distribution in time. I mean, like from the beginning of the growing season to the end, you can look at historical rainfall. So you can kind of characterize those things over, you know, a long term, like a climatic, um, you know, scale, like 30 years, let's say 10 years, 15 years, let's, you know, if you don't have a lot, a lot of data. And you can use that to clearly say that uh, based on the average conditions or how those conditions have changed in the past five to 10 years, um, maize cannot grow well in this region unless supported by irrigation, for example. So you can kind of say that clearly that there is, the distribution is so sporadic that, um, to give you an example, in the Karamoja region, um, they receive a lot of rainfall. Um, you know, it meant much more than in a lot of uh, West African countries, for example. Um, but the problem is um, that when it rains, it rains, and when it stops, it stops. And this is the problem. So crops like maize that need consistent rainfall over a three or four month period cannot survive in that kind of environment where there's two weeks of zero rain, and then there is two weeks of, you know, uh, crazy rain that floods and washes away everything and then it stops. So 
what you would need to do is in this particular case is understand, okay, or maybe, you know, figure out a way of harvesting the rainfall and providing it to the crop consistently and time because there is enough. It's just that the way it's the way in the, the waves in which it comes is not good for that crop. So crops can, you know, drown and nutrients can leach. So like you, 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 I don't know whether you've seen this yellow, you've seen beans that turn yellow. It's just because it's raining too much and the nutrients are leaching, you know, and, and not getting into the, into the beans. Maize can get washed away. So you want to come up with a way to manage that um, in, in a region like that. So people can still grow what they want, but, um, you know, not necessarily completely abandon what they would like uh, to eat, for example. Uh, yeah. So it's, you know, it's not just about like one crop really being great in a certain region when people don't want to grow it. So there has to be, it has to be a, a, a balance in, in some sense. Okay. Um, just um, more of a, a personal question. Um, I would suppose we grew up in around the same time period. I also grew up in Kampala. I live in Kampala in Uganda. And there was a program on Radio Uganda that, that was called Mubwengula. Um, I don't know whether you remember that. Um, it was about space. Uh, and <laughs> so, but it was- I think I was, have. You think you have, yes. Because it, think, it's yeah. purely, it was purely about your work, the kind of work you do and, you know, educating the masses in about space and things like that. So my question is, have you, have you considered bringing, bringing the old, the, the, the wonder of your, of your work to the general public in, not necessarily for us to, to use your data, but to just be old by, by space and satellite data and hopefully encourage a young girl or young boy who, who, who listens to you to become um, a geospatial scientist like you or something like that. <laughs> This, I mean, this is a uh, this is something that I've been I want to do in a very meaningful way. So I'm doing a, a little bit of it, including um, like talking to to kids at schools. Um, but since I'm not, you know, uh, an educator for young kids, you know, I have to be very. You have to be. I'm learning this from my own sons. Of course, I have three year olds. So with them, we create, you know, we make things with paper, planes and, 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 and rockets and we build, you know, bridges. And so they know all the construction trucks, you know, what they are and what they do. Um, what I hope to do is um, find other organizations that have really invested a lot of time in, 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 in communicating to young kids about space and about science. So like when I talk about it with my son, it's really exciting. And I'd like to keep that kind of excitement for kids at different levels. And I'm, but I want to do it in a meaningful way, you know, and uh, I'm doing it, but I would like for it to have a bit more impact. And I would like to see more kids, you know, familiar with uh, space and, 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 and and, you know, aspire to be astronauts, even though we don't need so many of, you know, so many astronauts, maybe we will in the future, but I'd like for, um, for them to be interested in things like agriculture and how crops work and, and how, how, how our forests are good for our environment. So just like science generally, but in, in a fun and interesting way. So my sons know, because I, I, since we've been here in lockdown, 
have been growing tomatoes and, and vegetables, they know that you put the seed in, you, they know you water it and they will come out and my son keeps saying, and it will grow big. So I, you know, that imagination when you're little is the same as how um, you, you just have to keep nurturing it. It's like a seed. And so I'm, I'm always looking for good opportunities as well as to introduce, you know, kids to technology, you know, things like computers and programming and, and all of these things that open up your mind to a completely different world that, you know, many people don't know exist actually. Um, yeah, so this I'm doing, but I'd like to do a lot better for sure. Thanks. Um, I, I didn't mean for that to put you on the spot. I'm no, just no, no, it, no, it's completely it. fine. Yeah, it's completely okay. fine. I just spoke with the primary school kids uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, it was really exciting and scary too, but it was, uh, they were really cool. They were telling me how they know about Mars and that, that was like really inspiring because I don't know if I knew about Mars at their age, <laughs> but my sons know yeah. about it at their age. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Catherine, just two final questions from me. One is, um, being the 2020 Africa Food Prize Laureate, how has that um, amplified the work that you do? Getting that prize, did it get you into rooms that you'd always wanted to get into? Um, I don't know about the rooms. Yeah. I think it got me into a really unique space where um, I've gotten in touch with so many scientists in Africa that I never imagined that I would. Um, uh, I mean, my from, through my research, I've always gone to government institutions and some universities opportunistically. And now I'm collaborating and, and kind of developing projects with students in Mozambique, in Nigeria, like kind of like independently, we're like working through like problems and trying to find like solutions, how to access data, how to learn to do different analyses that supports their own research. And that's really exciting. Like I have a, a Nigerian student who is in Austria. I have a, you know, I have a German student who's in them. It's like they're everywhere and it's, um, it's really great. That's kind of a space that uh, is fantastic because um, there are more individuals who are also interested in understanding their own local or country's environment um, who are really invested in understanding and, and doing research that I hadn't had the opportunity to, to reach out to. Um, so it's, it's been a, a really good, uh, I think it's been a really, really great outcome. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been, I've been, I've been, I've participated in a lot of events in the last couple of months, but I would say that um, I think the, one of my favorite outcomes of the Africa Food Prize is this connection with so many other African researchers that I wouldn't have otherwise um, been able to connect with. Yeah. So as we come to the end, Catherine, I would like for you to have some closing remarks. I'm not going to limit you to policy, to farmers, to to scientists, whatever it is that you would want to have for your closing remarks. Please go ahead. Well, um, I mean, it's always a, 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 a great thing to be able to, to share uh, about my work and about my story and about the, the, the great people that I work with, um, you know, who have made a lot of things possible that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be possible. Um, but I think my my, the thing that I would potentially would like to kind of see evolve and, and, and come to life is, uh, which I've realized through my connection with this other, you know, researchers at other universities that um, there are so many really brilliant minds, particularly in Africa. Um, 
this is where my you know most of my work focuses who would like to do amazing things who know a little bit about the field or different fields and you know they're you know experts in their other fields but they'd like to be able to tap into world-class resources computing um uh training and and there's lots of you know resources on, on the internet but if you can't access the internet then you know you you basically uh completely um kept in, in in the dark in that sense so um i think it would be great one day to see um you know more researchers on the world stage who have also had who have you know had similar resources that i've had i think we have a lot of, of brilliant minds on on the continent, I think that would be uh, that would be really fantastic to see other people doing really cool things across different fields, and you know that um, might be just limited uh, based on the kinds of resources that they have. And so this basically requires a recognition and an understanding and investment in science, believing science, but then also supporting our own. Um, researchers and, and linking research and policy, because we can't really improve and do things better unless we understand how those things, what's wrong, you know, like you, you can't fix your car unless you know exactly what's wrong with it. You could take the tire off, you could do all these other random things, which I think in some cases is what we're doing instead of like, you know, when there's this, you know, this diagnostic computer that you hook on that will clearly tell you, you need to replace A um, what I think typically, my dad is a mechanic, so I'm kind of describing the kind of mechanicing that he's he's done for quite a bit. Where um, I remember growing up, he used to. Sorry, I'm, I'm going off of of, of um, uh -huh. I'm going off on a tangent, but like he would, my dad would open up a car completely, and they would they would clean it thoroughly on the inside, like all the nuts and bolts. I have pictures from when I was a child. You know, just we'd just keep every other week you take a car completely apart because there's no way to really figure out what was wrong with the car and so i don't think we can we can't afford that we can't actually do that in 2020 about everything uh, be it water resource management forest management health you know you can't take a, you can't take the whole system apart but you need to be able to diagnose and know specifically what things to address and having well equipped well informed well educated scientists is one of those ways. And, and not only scientists, but you know, well-rounded policymakers and researchers and, and, and people who are interested in, in, in improving things, not only for themselves, but um, for everybody else. So sorry about the mechanic. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. It makes everything clear. Catherine, we're very grateful to, 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 to host you today. Thank you for sharing your your, your science, um, telling us about um, how data satellite data can improve the lives of smallholder farmers and influencing policy. That is also an area the Alliance works in greatly, but you know, like I told you from the beginning, we are mainly about biotechnology. So for everyone who has joined us, thank you very much. Um, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook, look for Cornell Alliance for Science. And if you are a science lover, we are really um, an alliance of people who are for science. We are not necessarily scientists, please jo um, visit our website and join us, become a part of us. We want to cheer scientists like Catherine on. So well done, well done. And we hope we can be in touch more. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone. Have a good evening and a good morning, depending on where you are. And, and I, I forgot to mention my co-host today, um, Chris Knight, who is
who has been helping us, you know, with the technicalities so that we don't, we, 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 we are seen on Facebook and on Zoom. Chris is based um, in Ithaca Cornell, Ithaca Cornell University. So Chris, thank you very much as always. And Richard Goodman is saying, Catherine, great talk, thank you. So thank you to everyone and bye-bye. Bye-bye, thanks.